Hi there, I'm Tom Schultz, host of Voices of Montana, an issue-oriented newsmaker radio program heard weekdays on 18 radio stations with 27 signals all across the Treasure State. Thanks for clicking on the podcast. Please subscribe and we'll do our best to keep you connected. We're also on Facebook at Voices of Montana and on the Internet at VoicesOfMontana.com, where I'd love to hear from you. Contact me at Tom at VoicesOfMontana.com. Wild hogs, feral swine. You know, they're, they're not so comical anymore. You, you remember when they were sort of treated with these cartoonish depictions? Wild swine, feral pigs, um, hillbilly chasing wild hogs across the prairies. That's, that's not, they're not comical anymore. I mean, there's an infestation in some areas. And the varmints, they're damaging, serious damage to crops, pastures, waterways. They're in a, notoriously hard to eradicate. There are areas down south having difficulties. In Canada, north of us, there are some concerns. They may be making their way to Montana. Well, not if folks can help it. I'll be talking about that today and a little bit more as our state veterinarian, uh, Tony Shemansky, will join us here. And then also Jared Beaver is with MSU Extension. We'll talk about a feral swine tour upcoming here for northeastern Montana today on Voices of Montana. Let's welcome our guests here today and get into this this feral swine tour in northeastern Montana, this issue that we're having. First, Dr. Tani Shemansky. Good morning, Tani. How are you? Good morning. I'm very good. Thank you for having me this morning. Oh, I really appreciate you being here as well. And then uh, Jared Beaver is with us. He's an ass- assistant professor at MSU, Montana State University, Bozeman, and also an extension wildlife specialist for MSU Extension. Good morning. How are you, Jared? Good morning. Doing great. I'm happy to be here. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate that. Tony, I'm going to start with you. Um, and then, Jared, uh, stand by because uh, I know that uh, you've got both, all you guys have a lot of work to do upcoming here uh, beginning in March. But what's what's the scope of this problem? Um, well, fortunately, in Montana, it isn't a problem at this point in time. But yeah. that's the, the, the point is that we very much want to stay in that category. We certainly are aware that southeastern United States has a pretty substantial feral swine population. And then, like you mentioned, um, Canada to the north of us does as well. We are concerned for many reasons about feral swine, certainly from the state veterinarian's office. Disease is one in particular. Um, And so we've got some regulations in place here in Montana to respond or to make feral swine in the state illegal and then how we would respond to them. So as the population in Canada grows and concerns about them potentially moving across the border into the U.S., um, we want to make people aware. And then just another scenario that we equally worry about is folks that may transplant feral swine from um, any part of the country into Montana to create opportunities for themselves. So feral swine, certainly along the high line, is a concern here in Montana, but we're worried about them cropping up anywhere. And, and I think that's another concern that, uh, as we've kind of talked about this in the past, that making this a a, a sport animal is is not a good idea. We'll we'll touch on on that here in just a little bit. I'm going to go to Jared Beaver again, an an assistant professor from Montana State University, wildlife specialist for the extension program. Out there talking to folks, Jared, what what are they asking about? What what do they hear? Um, Have you seen any sightings in Montana? What what are the folks on the ground saying? Um, You know, it's kind of like Tony said, luckily, you know, Montana's pig free and we've set ourselves up um, really well to stay that way. Um, and the biggest thing really is is monitoring, early detection. Pigs are basically a ticking time bomb when you have them on the landscape. And that's why the Squill on, Ki- uh, Squill on Pigs campaign has been established is early detection and reporting. 
um, is the number one line of defense there. And, you know, Donnie mentioned a, a really important point of um, it's not only a high line thing, really. It, it could happen most anywhere. Mm-hmm. Pig spread, I like to say, at about 65 to 70 miles an hour, which is about how fast they can move down the interstate. Because transporting pigs is, is a real thing. And so um, pigs could pop up most anywhere. And it's a message that we want to establish across Montana is that our best line of defense is that early detection and reporting. Yeah, Tony, and, and that's an important point to make as well, um, because I think we think of feral swine as a particular type of, of hog or, or, you know, animal. But domestic pigs can also, I, I guess, get into the wild and become feral, too. Yes, in very short order. Um, the traditional species that we think of would be like the Russian or European boar um, as like a true feral swine species. But any of our domestic pigs, um, if left to their own devices out in the wild, will revert back to wild uh, characteristics very rapidly. Additionally, they can all crossbreed um, with each other. So you could have something that's 100% domestic, uh, 100% feral, or some uh, interbreeding of those two um, out on the landscape. Hey Jared, what kind of damage do you see? Damage is tremendous. I like to refer to wild pigs as, as nature's rototiller. So they don't just browse the vegetation. They're going to dig it, stomp it, trample it, um, you name it. Uh, There's a reason they've been labeled uh, one of the biggest invasive threats to biodiversity in the United States. But it it doesn't just start there with the natural vegetation. Uh, Pigs are uh, omnivorous and opportunistic. So ag crops, pasture, rangelands, erosion, soil health, um, disease transmission, water quality. So Um, you name it, you know, pigs are going to eat it. Uh, They'll also eat young wildlife as well. And so I like to say, you know, they don't just eat what the wildlife do. They eat it first and and then they can eat the wildlife as well. And so there's a reason that the USDA has put uh, annually an estimated $2.5 billion worth of related damage from pigs in the United States. Where are they causing all this damage? Well, pigs, there's 38 different states that really are on the lookout or have had pigs at one point. Um, Primarily, when we think of most of uh, the huge numbers and where the damage is most significant would be um, across the the southeast and and over to Texas. But um, really, when you when you think about it, you know, 34 to 38 different states are dealing with this issue is um, it's pretty much a national issue now. Uh, Dr. Shemansky, has anybody done any good? Oh, gosh. Um, There are a few states that have made progress, um, areas that have um, pigs in very limited areas or that start the process early. Colorado, um, Washington, and Oregon have had some success um, in eliminating populations, but the really key part is to start very early in that response. Once they get established, it's extremely difficult to eradicate them. Is that, that northern herd pretty well established? Yeah, up in Canada, yeah. I think it is. Um, that has been growing for, um, gosh, I think close to 40 years now, 30, 40 years, um, that they've had some level of feral swine presence up in Canada. Um, I think there is good inf- inf- uh, information that says that the range is expanding as well as the numbers. Um, and I don't know that they have a really... Um, concerted uh, program to eradicate them. So I think the problem is continuing to grow to the north of us. Well, and that's part of the issue as well as, um, um, 
in eradicating these, they go across international borders, uh, this big threat to bio, biodiversity. Um, that's sort of a, a big phrase for me to understand and wrap my head around. Uh, Jared, stand by. I'm going to have you talk about this feral swine tour, an educational tour upcoming here in northeast Montana. But um, Dr. Tony Shemansky, again, a Montana State veterinarian, how did they become this recognized, uh, as Jared had said, a threat to our biodiversity? Well, here in Montana, um, gosh, back prior to 2015, when the legislature put our laws into place, um, as we were attending national meetings and speaking to state veterinarians in other states that were dealing with this swine issue, uh, we heard about the challenges that we were facing, um, some of the unique problems that feral swine present on the landscape. Um, and we thought, you know, that's not something that we want to be a part of. And so we uh, proactively worked with our counterparts at Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, worked with the Montana legislature and got really strong regulations in place. Feral swine are an introduced species. I think they were introduced back in like the, you know, 1600s, 1700s, um, and have established a really strong population here in the U.S. Um, and it will continue to expand without, you know, additional controls. So let's let's go. Um, this Northeast Montana feral swine tour. Um, it almost sounds like a party, Jared, but I I, I know it's not. You're starting March 5th, 10 a.m. in Haver. Tell us about this. What if they're going to go? Uh, is it producers? Is it just um, anybody who's got a general interest uh, in this? And then what are they going to pick up? Yeah, uh, it is open to anyone and everyone. Uh, this is a message that we would like to get out to as many Montanans as possible. Um, again, you know, it's a threat that we believe could pop up anywhere in Montana. But from a natural uh, expansion standpoint, um, Canada is certainly. Uh, a possibility. And so that would obviously be along High Line. And so that's an area we're focusing on with this particular tour. But it's, you know, in joint effort, the Montana State Extension County agents along the High Line have been terrific in putting this together and finding the locations for us. But really, um, you know, uh, Montana's Department of Livestock, USDA, Wildlife Services, Montana Invasive Species Council, and MSU Extension are all you know, partners and will be speakers along this tour. So you're going to hear, you know, about kind of current status, uh, basic biology, why pigs are such a threat, uh, some of the risk issues, and what are those management steps that are most appropriate. And as you had kind of mentioned, you know, one of those is, is one of those kind of misconceptions of that hunting, you know, recreational hunting just isn't the answer there. And it, it takes a set of um, steps that are state and federally mandated there and, and really focus on trapping. But our number one defense, again, and what we're really focusing the message on is early detection and self-reporting, because that's the only way to keep Montana pig free is to get on the problem as soon as it occurs. Uh, Dr. Shemansky, what, what are their habits? Um, so say, say we're on the lookout for, for feral swine. What are we going to look out for? What what kind of habits can can we see and recognize that there's even if we don't see a physical evidence of the animal themselves? Um, well, like Jared indicated, uh, akin to nature's rototiller, they do a lot of rooting and digging, and so you'll see disturbances of um, anything from golf courses, uh, lawns, uh, pastures, um, crop fields. Um, they like to um, they interact a lot with riparian areas. And so you might see a lot of disturbances in riparian areas. Um, those would probably be the two most common things um, that people will notice. The rooting is really um, is really distinct, 
and they can cover a really, um, or they can destroy, tear up a relatively large area in a very short amount of time. Um, so that would probably be the most common one would be rooting. What happens then, Jared, if we do if we do spot evidence of this? I mean, uh, there's a number out there, squeal on pigs, 444-2976. I'll give it out again, 444-2976. But uh, then, then what goes into place, say, if someone does make a report? That's a, a really good question, and, and Tony will probably be the best one to answer there. But there is a, a series, there's that hotline, and then there are a series of notifications that get made on the Department of Livestock side. Um, and then really it initiates the chain for confirming that call. And then if there is a threat, the removal of those threats. And that really relies on um, our, our USDA, APHIS, and, and Wildlife Services personnel. Tony, did you want to add to that? Um, yeah, just one very brief item is depending on whether it's a, a live swine, um, if, or in particular, if it's a report of a potential feral swine and it's a live animal, um, one of the first things that we do besides gathering that information um, and kind of notifying the key group of individuals that help with this program um, is we get a brand inspector out to that location um, to date every report of potential feral swine in Montana that has been a live animal has been an animal that has been owned by somebody. And so more often than not, it's a matter of identifying the owner of those animals and getting them back to that individual. So that's usually the first step that we take um, is getting a brand inspector out there to determine if they're owned. If they were not owned um, or in an instance where we have something like rooting reported to us, um, then we work with, like Jared indicated, wildlife services, um, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, the Montana Invasive Species Council to get surveillance out on the landscape and really start formulating a plan of how we're going to respond. So, Jared, uh, where can folks then find this uh, this schedule? It is March 5th. I've got it in front of me, and they can go, I think it's probably invasivespecies.mt.gov would be one place. Um, uh, but uh, why don't you give us that website out for information on this? And then um, I, I know it starts March 5th, um, both in Haver and Chinook. The 6th is Malta, Glasgow, Fort Peck. Uh, then on the 7th is Scobie and Plentywood, and they'll finish up in Sydney on the 8th. But um, where can we find out more? Yeah, so uh, invasivespecies.mt.gov. Um, it's it's up there on the website there, um, as well with the Squill on Pigs campaign and that number. Uh, and also most of the social media, the MSU Extension has broadcasted this. They're going to do kind of a news release as well. And so uh, a lot of the MSU Extension and USDA and um, the related agencies involved a lot of their Facebook and social media pages as well. But invasivespecies.mt.gov is going to be the best place to get that schedule. Got a flyer here. Flyer here. It says Montana does not have feral swine. You can help keep it that way. This is part of it. Hey, Jared, thank you. I know you had to take a little bit of extra time here uh, today. Um, so I appreciate that. Hope the kids are, are doing well and the family and, uh, and we'll, we'll probably chat down the road a little bit after you kind of get on the road there. I'm going to give a call and see what the response is and what people are asking and just kind of get an update there uh, a bit later on. But Jared, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for everybody's time. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. Jared Beaver again, assistant professor at Montana State University Bozeman. And then also with the Extension Office, the Wildlife Specialist. And we have our, uh, our very own uh, Dr. Tani Shemansky, a specialist. She's uh, such a specialist that she's Montana's state veterinarian. And there's other things on the plate to talk about here. One in relation 
to feral swine, and that's the response to disease from the state veterinarian's office. And Dr. Shemansky, thank you for staying on here as well. That's one of the reasons why I, I think it's important to talk more about some of those other things that are on your plate as our state veterinarian. And as you and I had just chatted a little while ago, there's there's concern about the African swine fever just offshore, so to speak. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about how those things do and get away from us at, at times. But you have also been working on a response to these types of events, too. What's that all about? Sure. So we have um, kind of a, a small list of what we call high-consequence diseases that aren't present in the United States and ones that, that we don't want to have um, in the U.S. So African swine fever, um, foot and mouth disease are probably two of the, the most well-known or well-recognized. Um, African swine fever is one that um, uh, kind of went across much of Asia and Europe over the last couple years and recently was diagnosed in um, the Dominican Republic, um, uh, so not too far from the United States. Um, with kind of that proximity to the U.S., our concerns about potentially being introduced into the U.S. Um, kind of have escalated um, and what the impacts would be of that. Um, certainly uh, feral swine are one that, that play into that conversation. Like you mentioned, they carry disease. We worry about the potential for those animals carrying disease that can infect our domestic livestock. Um, African swine fever is a unique one in that um, feral swine don't tend to be as severely affected by it, which makes them more effective mm. um, in moving it around the landscape. So another reason that we don't want it here in Montana, and certainly one of the challenges southeast U.S. would face if we did get an introduction. Um, these diseases tend to be really severe as far as the, the animal species that are affected by them, um, really high morbidity or number of animals that are infected, and really high fatality rates associated with them. So um, just not good diseases. Additionally, they'll have substantial impacts on trade, which really um, hits the industry from the, the economic side of things. Um, so we do a lot of preparation, and it's hopefully preparation that we never have to use. Um, but we know that um, should we have a disease introduction, um, we'll have to do a lot of movement restrictions um, to prevent the, the spread of disease or to prevent disease from moving around the landscape. Um, and so trying to have conversations ahead of time of, of what those stop movements look like, how we communicate them to the public, um, how we enforce them, what the, some of kind of the challenges associated with stop movements entail, um, and hopefully how we're ahead of responding to those. So those are some of the management tools then that, that once um, this, what did you call it, high consequential event? Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe talk about what, what constitutes those and, and some of those, those plannings that, and, and immediate steps that, you know, that producers are probably maybe aware of. I don't know. Uh, they should be, I suppose, uh, because it's going to have a large impact on them should it happen in that regard. Um, what are some of those other management? I mean, I can see uh, just the movement restrictions being uh, pretty consequential, that in and of itself. Yeah, so um, we are in the, I think, the second year of a high-path avian influenza outbreak across the United States. Right. Um, that would be considered one of those high-consequence diseases. Um, it can make domestic birds tremendously ill. Um, and again, it comes with those trade implications. Um, this is our second outbreak in less than 10 years. So in 2014-15, um, we had another outbreak. Um, where we have come from that first outbreak to now is pretty tremendous in our ability to 
um, minimize some of those trade impacts. So we're able to keep poultry and poultry products moving internationally. Um, and those are kind of done through um, some some big areas. One is movement restrictions, like you talked about, for animals to move out of what we call an infected zone or area. Um, there has to be some level of certification that they're disease-free. Usually that's surveillance and disease testing. Um, and then the third is just how we respond to the presence of that disease. Um, so you'll hear often um, about what they talk about is depopulation. So these animals are being euthanized so that they're not continuing to produce virus, um, viral load that's out on the landscape that can be transmitted. Um, and for this current outbreak, Oh, gosh, I should have looked at the number this morning, but I think we're well over 900 million birds that have been impacted wow. over the last two years here in the United States. So um, a really substantial size to this, um, to this. So how we translate that to the swine industry, um, again, those movement controls, not um, allowing the movement of animals um, that may be infectious, disease surveillance, um, and then um, response, unfortunately, does usually entail some level of depopulating infected or exposed animals. Um, hopefully with um, good controls in place, those animals can move through slaughter channels, but that's not always an option. Um, just anytime you move animals that are sick on the landscape, you uh, risk um, spreading that disease. And so producers themselves want to think about how they can keep their herd safe or herd flock safe. Um, and those come down to two things. One is biosecurity. So biosecurity is how can I prevent disease from coming on? So thinking about all of the different ways that disease move across the landscape, on the tires of vehicles, on boots, on contaminated equipment, on um, new introductions of animals. And so really being mindful of all of those things and doing as much as they can to minimize allowing disease to come into their operation um, should we get in an instance where we've got something like foot and mouth disease or African swine fever on the landscape. We'll tackle a problem tomorrow. I'm not sure we'll tackle it and get it to the ground, but we'll talk about it. That's for sure. Fentanyl. Fentanyl now the leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 18 and 45. Thanks to last year's, uh, well, just record amounts of fentanyl coming across the border. We'll have uh, Stacy Zinn on the program tomorrow. She's a, a candidate for Eastern uh, District our congressman, uh, the Eastern District House, but also former NEA agent. And uh, um, we'll have more on that issue as we talk tomorrow with Stacey. And I'll have more on that in just a bit. Um, a problem that we're also tackling here in Montana doesn't quite exist yet, but, man, uh, we're doing the best we can to make sure it doesn't. We don't have a feral swine population here, but there are new laws on the books. 2015, the legislature passed a bill banning hunting of feral swine, uh, based on a, a number of facts there as well. We're talking with Dr. Tony uh, Shemansky. She's Montana's state veterinarian and has first uh, been working with the Department of uh, Livestock in Montana, I think since uh, 2008. And uh, by the way, uh, uh, newly appointed. And congratulations on that, Tony. I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, let's let's pick this back up again, kind of where we left off. Um, we, we were talking just a, a, a few things about um, outside of this this wine program that was initial that was earlier today, um, the response to when disease does happen on the landscape, uh, there's a couple of things that immediately go into effect. You've got a plan. You've been working on that. Uh, let's pick that back up, and then we got a call from Skip. Sure. So um, I talked about biosecurity. Um, 
how we prevent disease from coming on to an operation. And then the second one is kind of planning for um, how we get our animals moving again in commerce. Um, we always talk about however we respond to disease, we don't want that response to be worse than the actual disease itself. So we want to get animals moving again, get commerce looking um, more normal. And so there's plans that producers can um, work with their local veterinarians on. They're called Secure Food Supply Plans, but they're kind of a checklist that producers can work through so that if we do get into a, um, a disease outbreak and we've got movement restrictions on the ground, um, producers can kind of come forward with these secure food supply plans in place and say, I've done my homework, mm. um, you know, can I enter commerce sooner? Um, and because they've got that nice like, kind of list of items that we look for from producers to know that those animals are safe to move, we can hopefully get them moving again um, in shorter notice. So we'll be working hopefully over the next year or two all across the state with livestock groups, um, livestock owners here in Montana, um, to try and get more secure food supply planning um, accomplished throughout the state to make us better prepared. Does um, vaccinations and things like that come into play here? It seems like, like you know, with the avian flu, um, once we maybe see these things on the landscape, I'm not sure there's a ton of tools out there that can address them or mitigate them rather quickly or, or rather efficiently. What's What's your thoughts on that? Depending on the disease um, is, is whether or not there's a vaccine available um, and then what the implications are of using that. So there is a vaccine for highly pathogenic avian influenza. Um, it has been used on a very limited basis here in the United States, again, because of some of those trade implications associated with it. I believe right now the only species that they're vaccinating are the California condors um, because they don't want to... Um, you know, they've, we've done so much work to recover that species. We don't want to go through that again. Um, but as far as domestic poultry are concerned, they have not used vaccination. Um, African swine fever is one where there's not a vaccine available. There's a tremendous amount of research going into that right now. Foot and mouth disease is one where um, there is vaccine. There is a vaccine. Um, it would not be... Um, in most instances, it would not be immediately ready. Um, they have plans in place to, should we get a detection in the United States, identify what the particular strain of FMD is to really ramp up production of that vaccine. Um, so we would probably be moving through about six weeks of an infection before we would have substantial amounts of vaccine on hand um, to start vaccinating animals. So we would really be working without a vaccine early on. So then does it, does it feel like your tools are, are limited then or maybe um, what's, what's the advance in maybe getting more tools? Um, I think a lot of our tools are limited. Um, I think, yes, absolutely they are limited. Mm. Um, it really comes down to how can we stop the movement of a virus or a bacteria around the landscape um, without a treatment, which none of these have, um, without a vaccine, which I just went through that. Um, it's really kind of movement restrictions and then reducing the burden of that um, disease agent on the landscape. And so that comes through, um, you know, euthanizing sick animals to stop that um, chain of producing additional um, vaccine or excuse me, virus or, or bacteria. Dr. Atani Shemansky again, Montana State Veterinarian. Let's take a, a call from Skip listening in Hamilton. And Skip, I understand you were uh, you were in Razorback country um, in a previous life, eh? 
Yes, sir. It's nice to talk to you, Tom, and refreshing to, to be able to call in. I'm been laid up for a week, and it's kind of like wrapping my brain around something. <laughs> and, and, and Dr. Shemansky, thanks for getting ahead of this problem uh, in so many ways, including the previous guest, because I, I was in Arkansas in 2015-16, and uh, down along the Oklahoma border, south of Fort Smith, and then east of there, and they had developed that problem. And my God, there was those those pigs were everywhere. And uh, because of the clan lifestyle, they loved killing them and eating them. Uh, but but the, the the destruction that 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 uh, I mean maybe more than one species they 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 have similar lifestyles. And my God, they the destructive nature of everything they do plus the disease that they bring to domestic livestock was really a problem. And I'm just so happy to hear you getting ahead of this stuff and warning people. And I hope that people appreciate you being proactive about it it's because to be reactive after it happens is, is a whole different world because it'll, it'll be a, it can be a horrible thing. And, Everything from the veterinary aspect to taking care of domestic livestock to, to what do you do to control the species in the wild, especially if our laws are upside down to taking care of them with hunting. And I, I just saw it happen. And, and up through uh, Missouri and Iowa, as you go north from where I was there for two years, it, it gets just as bad. And I, I wanted to just give you those as examples similar to another species, especially in the southern Louisiana and Mississippi areas along the intercoastal canal, which, was, which is a fur-bearing rodent called the nutria. You may know about the history of that and how it's just taken over and destroyed so many things. Skip, do you have a question? No, yeah, the question was... Thank you for that. The question is, do you have a, a plan to, to really educate people so they realize that the, their proactive energy is going to pay off in a case when it comes to these to the wild pigs? Thanks, for Skip. I appreciate that. Um, there is going to be a feral swine tour. Maybe you missed that um, early on. It's kind of concentrated around the high line. It begins March 5th. It'll start in Haver. Uh, March 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th. It'll hit a lot of those communities up there. Chinook, Malta, Glasgow, Scobie, Plentywood, and Sydney. Uh, find out more information there. Uh, you can just go to, I think it's invasivespecies.mt.gov for more information on that. Tony, just a- any response to that? I mean, yeah, uh, I look at a map, and, and Cody pulled one up here about all the areas in the south that are dealing with feral swine, and they've been doing it for, for a lot of years. What, what, what have we learned from them that, that we can employ I guess the only thing is, is that don't let them get a foothold, huh? Yeah, don't let them get a foothold. Um, and <clears throat> just really briefly, um, hunting is is not the is not the answer. And when I talk about hunting, I talk about like one individual out on the landscape removing maybe you know a number of pigs at a time. Um, there's several reasons that we don't want hunting here in Montana, and it's very counterintuitive. One, I mentioned this early, all live pigs that have been reported so far in the state have been owned. And so if you're shooting a pig when you see it, you may be shooting somebody's property. Right. Um, two, um, they are so extremely difficult to hunt through, or excuse me, to eradicate through hunting, um, because you typically won't get them all. They do run in large groups. 
um, and you won't see all of those animals. So you're only removing a few of them. Um, and that hunting pressure spreads them across the landscape and makes them just a little bit wiser to future um, attempts at hunting. And then the third one, and this is the big one for me, is um, if you use hunting and a hunting constituency builds, what do people that are interested in hunting feral swine need um, to continue to enjoy that? Mm -hmm. They need more pigs. Um, and so that's the biggest reason that hunting is not per per um, permitted um, here in Montana. Yeah, in fact, um, it's illegal. Uh, it is illegal. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I know, like I said, it's counterintuitive, <coughs> but um, uh, they they just they spread so prolifically um, that that hunting is is just has been ineffective in trying to eradicate them or even yes. manage them, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I know I was going to let you go here, but I'm up against a break, and I, I want to talk about one of the things that we had um, you know, on our plate, on your plate mostly, and uh, that has to do with, with brucellosis um, and, and how you're dealing with that. There's an outbreak uh, in Park Bison uh, and Elk. Well, I don't know if I would call it an outbreak. Got a quick comment here on our text line at 781-627-5483. How about trapping to get rid of feral hogs? I imagine... Uh, Dr. Shemansky, that there's probably too large a number if that happens, if there's an infestation in those areas. Um, that's, that, is that a, a, an effective management tool, trapping? I've heard, like, large traps that you can get an entire group of animals into and then deploy the trap mm. is used to manage them, but not, um, to my knowledge, not single animal trapping. Okay. Um, I'd like to see one of those large feral swine traps uh, in action. That'd be kind of cool. There's another item I wanted to pick up on here, and it has to do with possibly changing regulations that the public needs to know about uh, regarding brucellosis. What's uh, what's the, the skinny on that? Yeah, so um, as hopefully many people are aware, we uh, have um, brucellosis um, or bovine brucellosis in Yellowstone National Park bison and the elk that are in the greater Yellowstone area. Um, because of that, we manage our cattle population um, in that area because of the risk of spillover of that disease. And just like we were talking about the number of tools that we have for emergency management, um, the number of tools that we have to manage brucellosis are also limited. Um, brucellosis is what is called a select agent. That's a list that's maintained by um, Department of Homeland Security, um, APHIS, and the CDC. Those are disease agents that may be used as like a terrorist-type weapon, um, across the, the um, against the U.S. Um, that select agent listing means that there's substantial restrictions on how um, research can be done, on who can have access to those agents, um, and it really prevents the development of new tools um, as far as managing disease. Um, currently, there is a comment period open um, through USDA APHIS to remove Brucella species from that select agent list. Um, so we'll certainly be submitting comments. Um, we believe that um, the risk of brucella as a terrorist agent is very low um, and that the benefits that we could gain from having it delisted, namely um, uh, the ability to more easily conduct research that might give us better vaccines, better diagnostics, or even um, tools that maybe we're not aware of yet um, to try and manage brucellosis both in domestic livestock um, as well as in wildlife. So um, we're encouraging people to review that proposal um, and to consider submitting comments 
um, in support of it. Why do you think it would open up the door to more? And I imagine you're, you're thinking it would be significantly more. <clears throat> yeah. So um, right now it says that all research has to be um, essentially conducted indoors um, or there's a provision for it to be done around the greater Yellowstone area. Um, but there's just not research happening in that area. Um, and so if you have to conduct research on brucellosis indoors and you're trying to do research on large animals, um, it's really difficult to have enough indoor space to have enough animals in that space to do studies that are meaningful, right? Yeah. The best studies are done on larger numbers of animals. Um, so those facilities are extremely expensive. The space is limited and the funding that's available to do that research because there's not a lot of facilities in the U.S. that can even accomplish it is extremely limited. Yeah, lots to talk about. Thank you so much for the work you do as well. appreciate that. And and uh, we'll be a resource here for you. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for the podcast. Please share and subscribe and let us know what you think. Email me at tom at voicesofmontana.com. And don't forget, we're on weekdays on your hometown radio stations all across Montana. We hope to hear from you there too.